it's a good thing to try. I have no regrets about trying to build roller coaster or spending the money I did on taking it from an idea to an app. But it's also okay to, to throw in the towel if you know there's not product market fit or you know that you're not the right person to do it. I think that one of the hardest parts about being an entrepreneur is the time that you commit and you put all your eggs in one basket. Welcome into Studying Success. On this podcast, I interview investors and entrepreneurs who tell us about their life, the ins and outs of their industries, and the different ways that they have found success. In today's episode, we hear from Wesley Gottesman, who currently works at a venture capital firm called Brand Foundry Ventures as a principal. Brand Foundry Ventures has invested in companies such as Starface, the Acne Concealer Products brand, and Allburns. Prior to Brand Foundry, Wesley launched a startup called Roller Coaster and worked with Drew Brees to build Brees' company Nine Brand. Here's the interview. Wesley, so good to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks, Will. Excited to be here. Where are you located right now? I'm in Austin, Texas. Brand Foundry is based here. Oh, nice. So let's get right into it. What is Brand Foundry Ventures and what is your job? I am an early stage venture capitalist. So Brand Foundry Ventures invests in companies pretty much from idea stage up until initial product market fit. And so what we do is we find founders that have a passion and something they're trying to build and we connect them with capital in order for them to be able to build it. So we lead rounds, which means that we are the ones that set the terms and negotiate with the founders and then give them you know, up to $10 million in capital in order to go chase their dreams. So are you guys the first round of investment? Usually the first round where an institution, which is what Brand Founder Ventures would be defined as invest. So sometimes people will raise what they would call like an angel round or a friends and family round, where they'll have connections or family or people from the industry that will invest in it purely at a napkin stage. But by the time they're willing to take on substantial money and really build out a team, we're those first investors that you would reach out to. So you guys go in before the actual product is built. So how do you determine what the valuation of a company is and whether or not you want to invest? Yeah, it's definitely complicated. Sometimes feels a bit like Shark Tank since you're betting on people and you're betting on their ability to execute. So we don't necessarily invest before a product exists in terms of like generally something to evaluate, whether that be, you know, we invested in Allbirds, a shoe company. And one of the things that we had there was the initial shoe, even though the brand itself hadn't been developed, it was called something different than and the product wasn't for sale anywhere. So we generally have something to evaluate. And then from the, how do we consider investing and evaluate the company's value or valuation? The way that we think about it is much more, how do you motivate the founder? How do you give them the right amount of capital? And how do you make sure that the company is structured for success? So there's not really any intrinsic value, even though somebody might say your company is worth $4 million and will give you $1 million. So it's a $5 million company. The $4 million is more of an IOU than real money. It's not as if the founder could sell a portion of that $4 million and take money off of the table. So the valuation is definitely a flexible number depending on how to structure the business for success and making sure they have enough ownership and the company has enough money in it to chase down their dream. You mentioned earlier that you look specifically at the people as the factor in whether or not you want to invest. So who are the type of people that you look for or what are the qualities that you look for in people when you invest in a company? You know, all entrepreneurs have a few screw looses. I would include myself in that. I think it's a compliment, but it's usually somebody that has some initiative, has a ton of drive, definitely somebody who has high conviction in what they're doing and is willing to do whatever it takes to get there. I think the word would be resilience or grit. All of that is super important, but at the end of the day, I think there's a misconception 
misconception that betting on the founder and the founder can figure it out. I think although that's true, it's really the founder and market fit that matters more than just the founder. There's tons of really smart people, but I probably wouldn't invest in Bill Gates to develop a fashion line. You know, if Bill Gates was the right person to build Microsoft, he wasn't the right person to build Gucci. And so making sure that the founder has a natural fit into what they're trying to solve and why they're trying to solve it is just as important as it is for a founder to be an incredibly smart, incredibly capable person. Could you walk us through the example of Allbirds and how you guys met the founder of Allbirds and all up until investment? That was before my time, so there's probably better examples that I can do. I'm sure your audience is familiar with the company Starface, which is Justin Bieber's favorite acne company and one they've probably seen around high schools across the country at this point. But that's a company that I worked with the founder in New Orleans in 2011. He's somebody that I have a ton of respect for. I know has a ton of grit. He's somebody that kept track with since 2011. And 2017 or 18, he came back asking us to check out this new company he wanted to do. And sure enough, he found an incredible partner, the CEO of the company, Julie Schott, and they had come up with this concept to destigmatize acne and basically reinvent how people perceived having acne. Brian was a Teach for America teacher. He understood high schools. He had raised a bunch of money in order to build Field of Dreams in New Orleans, which is another sort of long story, and that's how I knew him. So I knew that he was capable of drumming up attention. I knew he was capable of understanding the audience, and Julie had you know, an incredible background as well that complemented his. So as we started to dig deeper into conversation, we started to look at the opportunity. We realized they were the right people to do it. We realized they had the right connections in order to turn it into reality. And although they hadn't launched yet, the product itself was developed to a point that we said, hey, we want to launch this in September because that's when back to school happens. And that's when our customer is going to want to buy something that helps them cover up their acne, but cover up in a way that's not embarrassing or medical, but in a way that's like, hey, I am who I am. So it's a, one of those companies that it was a long relationship that led to it, but we felt like the founders were just the right people to do it. Once you invest in a company, how much are you involved with the company and the decisions that the company makes? Like, are you guys, once you invest, do you join the board and kind of work directly with the CEO? We do. So usually the person who leads the round, as I referenced earlier, takes a board seat. In the case of an early stage company, that's usually two seats for the company's founders or the founder and somebody that he respects and admires. And then one seat is filled by the capital that was invested. So we have a government's responsibility and that we work with the company to make sure that they're good stewards of our capital. We work with the company to ensure that they're thinking through what's around the corner and what it's going to take to either bring on more capital or grow the company into a profitable entity that can stand on it. So that's our role within the board. We work with the company pretty much every day. It depends on the company as far as how often and, and what's needed. But in the case of Starface, I'm generally texting with Brian or Julie every day, every two days, even though that is an investment we made three and a half years ago. Generally, what is the period of investment time? Like how long in the future are you guys looking to stay with the company and make a return? It really depends on the company, but I think that's one of the hardest parts about venture capital is that you're really not investing on the current market. You're investing on what the market will be like in five to 10 years. So even though something might not have product market fit now, if you're still around and you can find product market fit later, or something might lose favor with the demographic and making sure that you're still set up for success through that long timeline. When we invest now, we're expecting, call it seven to 10 years before the company can come back out and we get paid back. So it's really a long period where you're hoping for a lot of things to break your way, both things in your control and things outside of your control. And that's you know one of the complicated factors is that there isn't an immediate feedback loop. Even though I've been doing it for five years, I still basically have no idea if I'm any good at investing because it takes 
until there's money back. It doesn't matter how great something looks on paper. So what market research goes into each investment? Like, do you guys try to do a little bit of product market fit research before investing into a company? And you said you like looking at the market in the future. Do you do research on where the market is going? It's another one where there's both a gut aspect of do you believe that that is what's going to happen in the future, as well as data that you can look at and really try to decipher a thesis around what makes the company work. And I think for Starface as an example of that, we understood and looked into how companies were selling acne products, what companies were selling acne products in CVS, what companies were selling acne products online, and we got a better understanding of the market as a whole. And then we looked into the demographic and we looked at Gen Z and Gen Alpha and said, this is a generation that isn't ashamed of who they are. They're not ashamed of their body and they're not ashamed of calling attention to the fact that acne sucks. That's a much different opinion on acne than my generation had, which was like, I'm not going to go to school today. I'm so embarrassed about my acne. Totally different concepts. And we felt that there was a hole in sort of filling that need for the next generation. And I think that this was a prime example of those two pieces of research compounding into a company idea. Definitely everyone thought it was crazy. It was against the norm at the time of investing to think people would wear a bright yellow star on their face or a SpongeBob SquarePants on their face uh, over an acne patch, but played out to be true in the sense that your generation is just much more comfortable with who they are than ours was. How did you get involved with Brand Foundry Ventures? So that actually goes back to getting an MBA. I was a founder and a builder and operator at startups my entire career from really before elementary school uh, all the way until you know post-college and, and my first real jobs after college. But when I went back to business school, I was dead set on starting a company. And I met Andrew through a program called Venture Fellows, and he brought me on to be an intern. My thought process was I'll spend a year or so here. I'll know exactly what to write in a pitch deck so that I can raise money and I'll be able to start an awesome company. Life doesn't always work out as you expected. I kind of fell in love with the job and fell in love with being able to support and work with entrepreneurs doing incredible different things and feed off of their passion. So now I've been here for about five years. What do you like about the job? Why do you love it? I think if you can feed off of other people's energy and their passion around something, it's really a great job. I'll give the example of an olive oil company called Brasa. It's uh, olive oil in a squeeze bottle. It's farm to table from a farm in Spain. It's an incredible company. And I knew nothing and cared nothing about olive oil before I met Andrew Benin, the founder. But his passion for olives and the way that he sees the world and the way that he puts his whole energy and being into the company made me excited. And I think if you have that skill set or that desire to be able to look at somebody else and say, how can I help you do this thing that empowers you and allows you to live your dreams out? It's a really great place to be. It's scary. It's hard. You know, you're investing other people's capital in the future and nobody can predict the future. There's nobody on earth that can actually tell you what next year is going to be like, nevertheless, 10 years from now. And so it's a, a stressful job, a scary job. But if you really can buy into like you're connecting capital to the people that can transform the next 10 years and you're allowing them to live out their dream, it can be a really great spot to be. What is your job specifically within Brand Foundry Ventures? So my title is principal and basically it's a level before you're a partner. So I need to you know, put a couple wins on the board where we're turning capital and making big returns off of those investments before I can move up in the world. But in the meantime, I basically have the same responsibilities in the sense of I invest in companies, I sit on their board, I support them through acquisition or exit. And yeah, I, I source them, which means I go out and find entrepreneurs like Andrew Bannon that care passionately about olive oil. I support them, I invest in them, and hopefully someday soon we'll be able to return some capital back to investors who believe in us and our ability to find those companies. 
And so how did you work your way from an intern all the way to a principal? That's a, a great question that really involved timing and luck much more than skill set by me. Anytime you're working in a venture capital fund, it's a unique opportunity in terms of there's not a ton of money to go around or pay staff. So our team is just three of us. There's the two general partners and myself. And as I started as an intern, the general partner that I was working for was growing the fund and trying to expand the amount of money that he was investing and expand the reach of his network. So being able to be there at that time, at that place, he had just moved from New York to Austin. He was expanding vision, expanding how much money he wanted to have under management. I was able to support and Starface was honestly a big piece in that and that I had worked with Brian and when he came to us uh, to pitch, I knew that he was the type of entrepreneur that we wanted to back and I helped think through that decision. And so I showed a little bit of value there and in turn, Starface launched and was immediately impactful. You know, success we'll have to judge later, but it immediately resonated with the audience. And so it was a company where I think I demonstrated an ability to do that research, to do that understanding and really support a founder. And so Andrew asked me to stay on after I finished business school and eventually sort of worked my way up into a more active investor level role at the company where I can source and, and do my own investment. You talked about going to McCombs and being at business school. What is the experience like to go to business school and what do you learn? And what are the pros and cons? Stuff like that. Tons of pros, definitely a few cons as well. I think when I think about business school, it really boils down to having a time in your life where you can think through what you want to do and what's ahead of you. You can be around other smart, incredibly talented people that have similar interests as you. And one of the things you don't realize when you're in high school or college is that after college, you're not surrounded by people your own age anymore. You're not challenged by your peers nearly as much. You're at a company and most of the companies I was at, I was the only person, you know, under 30 at the company. And most of the things that I was doing, I didn't have a peer set to bounce ideas off of. I didn't have a peer set outside of my friends, which I would see, you know, maybe on the weekend. You're really not surrounded by that interaction with people your age and the ability to feed off of each other. So to go back to school and surround yourself with those types of people again and be in a community of learning again and being able to share ideas, meet people that, you know, otherwise doing totally different things that you would have done at work. And so you never would have met them. It's just an incredible experience. And it's really the learning off of them that I think makes business school worth it. The classes can be great. The ability to expand your network with teachers and the ability to learn about operations or logistics is really cool. But without your classmates, I don't think an MBA program is worth it. And I think University of Texas did a wonderful job of finding people from across the world you can surround yourself with and bring a lot of diverse perspectives to the table. My last episode, I talked with someone who said that business school is mainly geared to people who wanted to go into finance rather than entrepreneurship. So I'd love to know what you think about that perspective. I think finance and consulting and sort of big company marketing is definitely true. Entrepreneurship involves, like I said earlier, having a couple of screw looses and breaking things and trying to figure it out. And that's sort of the opposite of business school, which is like a big time de-risking move. It's a big time signal to the market. It's not very set up for like somebody who wants to just figure it out. If you're going to do that, you should just start a company. And that was a lot of the pushback I got when I was talking to my mentors about going to business school in the first place is why? If you want to start a company, start a company. And I think that for me, it was like a cop out and that I didn't have an idea. I wanted to learn about venture capital. I wanted to learn about investing in finance because I had a more technical background that I went to business school. And that's worked out really well for quite a few 
few entrepreneurs. I mean, the, the founders of Allbirds, the founders of Harry's, the founders of Warby Parker, those were basically the same class at Wharton. So you have a lot of wonderful people, wonderful entrepreneurs who go back to business school and try to use that time to be entrepreneurial and allow them to reset and figure out what they want in life. But I definitely agree that the curriculum and the utility of business school is not centered around somebody who wants to start something and be innovative. It's definitely much more of a classroom dynamic where they want to place you at McKinsey or a BCG and be able to go and step into that world of finance or consulting and make a big impact through your network that you built at school. Could you talk about your experience with roller coaster and was that before or after business school? That was before business school and it was really after a startup that I founded with Drew Breeze called Nine Brand. So Nine Brand was an apparel company with non-competes against Levi's and Nike. So a really tight window of where we were allowed to play. And it was a company that Drew Breeze started in New Orleans a little bit after Katrina as a way to sort of motivate the city and demonstrate that the city is an entrepreneurial hub. I was working at Idea Village, which was a nonprofit incubator. And he came through and eventually he just hired me full time to work with him and for his agent on building Nine Brand and supporting his charity as well. So from that experience, I learned a lot about inventory and, and the impact e-commerce was starting to have on apparel companies. And that when you sell both to a retailer like a Target or a Macy's, as well as sell online, there's a lot of stipulations on pricing that stop you from being able to discount and stop you from being able to have the cash flow in order to start next season cycle or invest in more shirts. So Roller Coaster was based around that idea and it was trying to provide group shopping so that people can buy 20 shirts, which gives the company enough money to buy back or discount the shirts at stores in order for them to basically clear out the inventory and build a new, whether it be a new product or a new purchase order or anything else. It was, I think, a strong case study as to why I started it. It was not a strong business. And a lot of that was because of myself. I wasn't ready yet to take a big enough leap. I wasn't ready yet to build a tech team. I didn't have the experience I really felt like was necessary to do something like this. I was decent at selling. I could go in and I met with some amazing companies that I'm still friends with today, like Howler Brothers and Cricket Shirts. And so super appreciative of that time, but it became clear about six months in that it was not the right fit for me to be doing then. And it's something that I've actually seen several brands have success with later on, including beta brands with a similar sort of tactic, but it's not something that I was prepared to do. So that actually brought me through sort of a more formal venture capital experience at BuzzPoints and Fleur and, and eventually joining Brand Founder. What do you think are the biggest takeaways from your time at Roller Coaster? One is starting a company is impossibly hard. It is something that you've got to 24-7 be banging your head against the wall. Two is I think you've got to found it with the other partner that has different skill sets than you. Me and one of my best friends started the company and we had different skill sets. He was a great designer. He's an architect now. And I was coming from the business side at the Breeze Enterprise. And I think that what I realized is that although we had different skill sets, we really needed a yin and yang, not a Venn diagram. And both of us really loved to sell, but neither of us was technical enough to really build out a tech team. So we were trying all these different things to try to build a tech product. We were tinkering on finance, but that wasn't really my special skill set. I was much more in the weeds of the operations. And so it was really a game of you need to start it with someone that is truly supplemental to you and somebody that can handle the areas of the business that are necessary, not just because we're good at working together. So that was a big learning. And then lastly, I I think it's a good thing to try. I have no regrets about trying to build roller coaster or spending the money I did on taking it from an idea to an app. But it's also okay to, to throw in the towel if you know there's not product market fit or you know that you're not the right person to do it. I think that one of the hardest parts about being an entrepreneur is the time that you commit when you put all your eggs in one basket. It's really, really hard to look back six years later and say the startup failed. What am I going to do next? 
if you didn't learn enough or you're just trying to slam your head against the wall enough times that it broke through. Six years is a lot of time. And and if you think about your career as a whole, you wasted six of your most valuable years on something that didn't work. And so instead of trying to go down that path and doing whatever it took to raise and figure it out later, I thought it was worthwhile for me to improve myself or trying again. And I still feel like someday I might have a business in me from that experience, but it definitely taught me that it's worth doing. You'll never regret it, but don't try to make it work just for pride. If it's not the right thing, it's not the right fit. It's okay to tell your investors to call the people that supported you and say, hey, this is what's going to happen and I will be back and I won't let you down again. Do you have any good stories that my audience would benefit from hearing within Roller Coaster or Brand Foundry Ventures or just your career in general? I think one story that I get a kick out of still is when I was working for, for Drew Brees, a hurricane was coming through the week that we were supposed to launch. And luckily, my grandma lived in New Orleans and she had a generator at our house. And so instead of having to flee New Orleans, I went over to my grandma's and started to work from there and calling her ad agency that was helping build our website and dealing with all the logistics from her landline at her house. And sure enough, launch happens. It's a great success. We get a ton of people through the door buying our all-in t-shirt. That was sort of an inspirational message to the city. And somehow my grandma started to get calls. And she was like, hey, Tina in Santa Fe wants a small shirt, not a medium. She was hoping to exchange it. And I was like, she's taking crazy bills. I don't know what's going on. Another call comes through. Same sort of thing. And I go on the website. I can't find out like why she's getting calls on her landline. And sure enough, a friend of mine that had bought a shirt calls me and says, hey, I'm looking at the invoice that's inside of the box and it says to call this number for support but when I call it it's your grandma's phone number (laughs) and so she was our customer support willingly or unwillingly for a good two or three weeks until you could figure it out and stop all the outbound shirts from having that phone number in there I think the lesson from it is that it really is takes a village to do anything entrepreneurial and it's incredible that my grandma you know didn't kill me for turning her house into the Drew Brees nine brand hotline people calling to talk to Drew people calling about you know, different shirt size and everything else. But she did that because she knew how much it meant to me to be able to not have her change her number and be able to talk to people on the phone and give them customer support despite being in her 80s at the time. What resources like books, podcasts, essays would you recommend to learn more about venture capital and business in general? There's a good number of books. Venture Deals by Brad Feld is one that's constantly referenced. I think it's a really good place to start. The Four Steps to an Epiphany by Steve case. Reaching Back is an excellent book at understanding startups and how to do the early days and figure out if there will be product market fit. I like to look at emails like Dan Primax, Axios email that walks through which companies are being invested in. I like listening to podcasts like the 20 Minute VC, which has a really good job of bringing on incredibly impressive guests to talk through how they're thinking about the world. But yeah, there really isn't one way or one source. How I Built This by Guy Ross is another one that I think gives you a good idea of how people get motivated to start what they do and, and what they did in order to make it successful. So a hundred different resources. No one is going to unlock anything in particular, but all of them sort of play into this overall dynamic of being curious and learning, which is an essential part of being a venture capitalist or an entrepreneur. Wesley, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It was awesome to meet you, Will. Really appreciate you having me. As always, thank you for listening and please make sure you subscribe to get updated when new podcasts come out. I'm Will Burkhart and you've been listening to Studying Success.